Hi there, and welcome to the very first episode of Cyfoeth, the Natural Resources Wales Environment podcast. My name is Leon Bevan, and I'm a Senior Communications Officer working for NRW. Our work is broad, so we'll have no shortage of great stories to share with you. We are a regulator protecting people and the environment, a land manager responsible for 7% of Wales's land area, including woodlands and national nature reserves, a Category 1 emergency responder to about 9,000 reported environmental incidents every year, a principal advisor to the Welsh Government and the largest supplier of certified sustainable timber in Wales with up to 835,000 cubic metres of timber being felled in our forests each year. And there's so much more beyond that. All in all, our work is to protect and promote the natural resources of Wales, to help fix the local environment where it's needed, and to protect it where it's special. This month, we're kicking things off with the first of a two-part special down in lovely Pembrokeshire, where my fellow Senior Communications Officer, Linos Merriman, spoke to our colleague Phil Newman about his career and the great work they do in the Scormed Marine Conservation Zone. Now, to be honest with you, we had planned to make one episode out of our visit to Scormed, but our colleagues had so many interesting things to say that we had to turn it into two episodes. Over to you, Linos. Thanks, Leon. Um, so I'm joined here by Phil Newman, who's our Senior Marine Environment Assessment Officer at Scormed. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Phil. That's right, you've brought the weather with you too. Always a bonus. Absolutely glorious today, isn't it? So we're on um, Skelmy, which is our monitoring boat at Scormer Marine Conservation Zone. Um, so first of all, can you tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do? OK, well, I started way back in the sort of late ice age, I think, in 1991 was when I first turned up. So I've been around for a little bit. And uh, the work that we do is mainly uh, marine monitoring. So whether that's underwater or on the shores okay. and includes both sort of biology as well as water quality and oceanography and that sort of thing. So things like water temperature and uh, how murky the water is, salinity, things like that, and some water chemistry stuff. And then underwater, we've got a whole series of sites set up with permanent uh, sites uh, that are marked out so we can find them from one year to the next and looking at a, a range of different underwater communities. Sounds very varied, you've got a, a lot going on here. Um, so when we decided to launch the podcast um, we wanted to start with something really quite special um, and a bit of a bang so we decided to come here to join you at Scorm Marine Conservation Zone um, but maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with it uh, can you tell us a bit more about the conservation zone itself and, and why it's so special? Okay well the uh, the Marine Conservation Zone extends around the island of Skoma uh, it goes up to the high water mark so Effectively, we, we look after all the wet bits, as we tell people. Uh, the boundary then extends across to the mainland, uh, so the Marlos Peninsula, okay. and the, the coasts and waters around that are included in the marine conservation zone. So it's about 1,400 uh, hectares of seabed. Uh, some of it is rock, some of it is sediment, and we've got everything in between. So there's a whole range of different habitats there. Uh, and then on one side of the island, it's very sheltered from waves or wind. On the other side, it's exposed to the full force of the sort of Atlantic storms, if you like. 
uh, and then we've got a seven meter tidal range to put on top of that. So in some places there's very, very strong currents. Okay. Other places there's barely any current at all. So by the time you've put together all those permutations and combinations, the number of different habitats we've got is phenomenal for one little patch of seabed. And of course, we get all the various uh, animal and plant communities that are adapted to all those different habitats. So the diversity of those communities is absolutely immense. And that was the reason that it was chosen in the first place back in 1990. Um, that was when it was designated as a marine nature reserve, a statutory marine nature reserve. But that had been a process that had been going on for probably 20 years before that. But the site has always been well known as a site of very high biodiversity. That's really fascinating. Sounds like a lot of work has gone into making it what it is today. Are there any particular species that are really special here? Well, part of the, the beauty of SCOMA is that it's right at the edge of, of the range of a lot of species. So there are some things like the pink sea fan, which if you go any further north up the coast of Wales, fizzle out. So it's kind of the last stronghold, if you like. Whereas down in the southwest of England, there are ten a penny down there. Yeah. So we're right bang on that, that edge. Um, and then we get some northern species. So we're on the overlap between the two. So that helps to sort of uh, improve the biodiversity as well. But it means that with climate change, we're in a good position here to see whether that's affecting some of the, the marine communities as well, because obviously that boundary will wobble right. in one way or another. Okay, so it sounds like there is quite a lot of work that gets done here throughout the year. How would you manage to get it all done? <laughs> well, um, basically there's four of us in the team uh, at SCOMA MCZ, two full-time, two part-time. So, uh, you know, we're not four full-time people to start off with. And uh, to form a diving team, we have to have four commercially uh, qualified divers. Okay. So we spend as much of the good weather season, so from beginning of April right through to the end of September sort of thing, uh, out on the water or under it or on the shores, uh, getting on with our work. But obviously people need time off, they yes. need holidays, <laughs> they, they occasionally need to see their families. So uh, when one of the team is away, obviously that means that the diving team is no longer can no longer function okay. with only three people. Yeah. So in that event, we've got a whole uh, pool of volunteers who are suitably qualified. They've got all the, the commercial diving qualifications or the equivalents. Um, and they came, come out to make up the numbers. And without them, certainly this year, uh, when we've had issues with certain members of staff being out of action, mm. we, we couldn't have got anything done. So the volunteer divers who help us as part of our team are incredibly important. And then we have other projects which um, are just too big for our small team to handle on their own. So things like looking at our protected scallop population, we'd need to cover, we need to cover hundreds of square meters of seabed uh, doing the surveys for that. 
So that's where our teams of volunteer divers come in. So we charter in local dive charter boats, fill them with volunteer divers, and they get on with the work which doesn't necessarily need any marine biological experience. They just need to be competent divers who can recognise a scallop in the instance of the, the scallop surveys. And uh, yeah, everybody has a thoroughly good time provided the weather's okay. Uh, loads and loads of scallops are brought up uh, onto the deck of the boat. They're all counted, uh, they're all uh, measured, and they have growth rings like a tree on the shell. So we can count the growth rings and we get really important statistics on how old the population is and how many of each age there are. And then all the scallops go back in again. So uh, if there are a few inexperienced divers who haven't done this survey before, the tears that they weep when they see the scallops <laughs> going back in the water. <laughs> Unfortunately, if you took the scallops home, uh, even one scallop might cost you £50,000 because wow. that's what the fine is for removing them. So do these divers, it sounds like that you're all having a great time, do you have sort of repeat volunteers that um, come back year on year or um, do they tend to be a good mix of different people? Oh, we, we definitely have repeat, repeat offenders, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to call them that really. But one of our first uh, volunteer diver projects was to survey the eelgrass bed in North Haven, which is just behind us here. Okay. We're tied up to the visitor moorings, which help protect that eelgrass bed to stop people from anchoring in it uh, because that damages it. Um, but if we were to try and survey that ourselves, it would take us all year just with our small team. So back in 1997, I think the first survey was done as an experiment really to see if we could use volunteer divers. And we've got the same people coming back <laughs> sort of years and years later and insisting on coming back. Woe betide you if you miss them off the uh, emailing <laughs> list. Fab. Um, it sounds like there's ever such a lot. I'm wondering, um, so you've mentioned that it might take you almost a year to get just one um, type of monitoring done if it was just, just your small team. Does, does the season um, affect what sort of work you do at all? How does, that, um, how does that work out? Do you do different types of work? Yeah, very, very definitely. So, you know, in the, in the supposedly good weather season, and again, you know, that can be a mixed bag from year to year, um, we get all the sort of underwater stuff done, anything that really requires boat work. Um, then towards the autumn, uh, we have the seal pups turn up. So they are up, up to about 400 seal pups born within the marine conservation zone. Um, about a third of those are born on mainland beaches. So from our office in Martins Haven, we can simply walk out along the cliff tops and count seal pups uh, every few days uh, and keep on top of those. But obviously on the island, uh, it's a much bigger job. So that's contracted out to, uh, uh, in the last few years, the, the Wildlife Trust who have wardens resident on the island so they're able to carry out that work for us. But one of the beauties of having the team based in Martins Haven um, and our boats on moorings in Martins Haven is that any good weather window, regardless of what the weather forecast might have promised us, um, if it's different to that, we can get out at the drop of a hat and actually get on with some work. So the, the use, the amount of downtime mm. is very, very limited. 
because uh, we can take that opportunity very quickly. So with the monitoring work that we're collecting here and all the data that you're, you're bringing together, um, does that get used for a particular um, purpose? Yes, and there, there are numerous purposes for the, the monitoring work, whether it be the, the visitor and recreational uh, visitor monitoring that we do, uh, which is almost unparalleled in the UK. Nobody collects that sort of level of uh, information anywhere else. And uh, even with uh, fishing intensity, uh, the same can be said of that. So bits and pieces of data are used for different sort of policy drivers. Um, but the overall purpose of the monitoring that we do is to be able to report on the status of the site itself. Um, the fact that the Marine Conservation Zone is slap bang in the middle of the Pembrokeshire Marine Special Area of Conservation mm -hmm. means that we can also contribute to reporting on that site and a lot of our data goes towards that as well. So, you know, it's, it's multiple uses. It's, uh, as uh, one of our colleagues, Catherine Digan, coined the phrase, you know, sample once, use many times for data that's quite difficult to, to acquire. Yeah. Great, so I can hear um, some people in the background and I can see some um, boats um, milling about us here. So um, I'm wondering how many visitors you get in a year? What's, the, what's your average intake? Uh, it varies quite a lot from year to year. Uh, some years we can be absolutely bombarded with people on sit-on-top uh, canoes and kayaks. So, uh, but every year we will get you know, several hundred uh, kayaks particularly. Some of the, um, the commercial, uh, commercially led groups of kayaks uh, come out to Martins Haven and set out and they, can, they go right round the island and back again. So there may be a, a dozen or more kayaks all in a group like that but with a, a professional guide. And we have a very good working relationship with the, the professional guides, one of whom actually replaced our the, the oar blade on our dinghy, free of charge, <laughs> bless them. So, uh, yeah, good working relationship there. Then we have anglers, and we maybe have several hundred anglers in a year. Divers uh, used to be in the thousands. We used to have thousands and thousands of divers coming out. Uh, but for one reason or another, those numbers have diminished. Uh, the popularity of overseas holidays, I think, has probably contributed it. Yeah. Uh, you know, guaranteed nice, clear water, warm conditions, uh, and uh, that can be a little bit of a mixed bag uh, in Pembrokeshire. But uh, in COVID, mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing a lot more divers this year than we have in, in previous years. People winning the back around. Yeah. Um, so how has that affected um, your monitoring work, the, the state of things with coronavirus, did, did it impact you quite heavily? Well, that, yes, in, uh, in 2020, basically nothing happened at all. So the, the lockdown came and because of all the precautions that were being taken at the time, it was deemed that working on small boats, you couldn't socially distance. So um, we were put onto other duties for the, the whole of 2020, which meant sitting at our desks, which is very much goes against the grain with the, <laughs> the team who are used to out, being out in the field. Uh, and it's the first time in 30 years that we've been stopped completely from, from doing our monitoring. You know, we've survived storms, uh, the Sea Empress oil spill, 
all sorts of things, oh. even staff shortages, and we've still managed to get out and do most of, if not all of our monitoring programme. And the knock-on has continued into this year a little bit in that we're about six weeks late starting our monitoring programme. So that's caused some issues. Um, but we're working around with sort of COVID precautions in place and uh, we're going as fast as we can to try and sort of make up for lost time yeah. on that particular front. So has it, um, in terms of thinking about, the, the, you've mentioned that sort of you've got this great bulk of data that you've been collecting over 30 years, uh, has the inability to go out over the last year, has that affected that, um, the robustness of that data at all? Uh, it's, it's made a gap, which is always bad news in any data set. Um, fortunately, because we've been collecting the data over such a long period, it means that that data set is more robust. So having one year dropout needn't necessarily be a, a catastrophe. Having said that, we can, we can miss a year and some, something will happen during that year and we've got no monitoring to find out what the situation was before that incident happened. Okay. So we're, we're, we're just lucky in that in the year that we weren't able to do any monitoring, nothing awful happened that we know of yet. Okay. <laughs> but we will report at the end of this year uh, if that's not the case. Okay. Um, a little birdie told me, Phil, that you're retiring this year after 30 years here at SCORMA. Um, I'm sure you've got a whole raft of highlights to choose from, but could you maybe tell us about a couple of them? <laughs> yeah, time off for good behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird thinking that uh, I won't be out here doing this sort of thing um, in a few months' time. But uh, yeah, there's all sorts of highlights. I mean, it's a fantastic job to be able to do. And having been here this long, I've been here long enough to see the changes, some good, some not so good, admittedly. But uh, it's being able to see the impacts of our management, I think, which is most satisfying. So we've got uh, the protected scallop population like I mentioned before, and the fact that we're out here making sure that that fishery bylaw is, is enforced, even by soft enforcement, just by being here in people's faces. Um, but to be able to see the scallop population rebounding as it has done. So there are many, many times more scallops here now than they were when I first uh, appeared. And to also see the recovery in the sediment seabed where the scallops live, because that's no longer subject to beam trawling or dredging, uh, let alone taking scallops away, the whole diversity of that sediment seabed has just gone through the roof. I mean. The people who we send samples off to are just flabbergasted by the number of species and the, the sheer abundance of stuff in what's basically muddy gravel. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's that's very uh, satisfying. There's been various uh, incidents over the years where you know I've been terrified, happy, sad, <laughs> uh, sad in when I'm doing the monitoring work and I realised that perhaps a pink sea fan that I've been taking a photograph of dutifully every year for the past 25 years is no longer there and has just vanished and that, that can hit you. Mm. Uh, or a site where that's getting particularly badly impacted by loss of sea fans 
um, and you just wonder where where the next steps are going to happen in that. And then you know, the sort of peaks of excitement. One when we found uh, an unexploded parachute mine from the Second World War Gosh. right next to one of our monitoring <laughs> sites. Been there peacefully for 70, 80 years. And uh, yes, we just happened across that. 750 wow. kilos of the, the Third Reich's best high explosive. <laughs> Still fully viable, oh, according to dear. the bomb disposal guys who came out and towed it away and blew it up. <laughs> uh, I'm really surprised to hear that. I'm glad I asked you that question. Um, do you know what you're going to be doing when you retirement, are you gonna? Have you got any special plans? Um, catch up on my sleep. <laughs> uh, I think. Well, I've already filled out the the, uh, the paperwork to sign on as a volunteer because I figure that there's still a few few more good years in me that the the uh, marine conservation zone can benefit from. So I'm, I'm hoping to come out and do some of the sort of diving work with the team uh, in the future, and then go home again before I have to do any of the paperwork. That'd be lovely. That sounds wonderful. Got all the best bits. And that's it for this month. Thanks for joining us on our trip to the Scormed Marine Conservation Zone. I know that Linus and I have learnt a great deal from talking to Phil. In next month's episode, we'll carry on with our visit to Scormed. We'll talk to our colleagues Kate Locke and Mark Burton about the different kinds of shoreline monitoring they do at the Marine Conservation Zone. We'll also be catching up with Phil for a short question and answer session. So if you want to ask any questions to Phil about his work, message us on social media or tweet using the hashtag NRWPodcastQs. That's NRWPodcastQs. We'll put that in the episode description if you need to check it. But be sure to get them in quick because he's retiring at the end of September. Now, as I said at the start of this episode, this is our very first foray into podcasting. So please bear with us. There might be some bumps on the road, but we're having a great time in building the podcast and we know it's a great way to give people a detailed look into our work and to know more about the people who make up NRW. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and sharing it with your friends, family or whoever you want. And let us know which elements of our work you'd like to listen to by getting in touch with us on our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.